Welcome back to an episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we are going to talk to Mr. Tony Grant. It's been three years and we have a new guest on. And I actually think, Brad, if things work out the way we planned it to be, next week should be a new guest as well. So we're we're trying to get some fresh, I should say fresh perspectives, but we're also getting them from very experienced anglers. Uh, a lot of knowledge out of these two, hopefully as, as long as everything works out in that mid- as of right now, I think it's going to, right, Brad? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if it's uh, not sharing knowledge, there should be some really cool stories. That's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, Brad, let's share a few stories. Have you been out uh, doing any musky fishing lately? Yeah, I have, Jeff. You know, we just, uh, with Mayhem's 10,000 Cast, we just got done doing a, uh, a trolling segment for mid-October and we did okay i will say that uh, it wasn't stellar but hey you know what we got the job done and we're looking forward to kind of coming into this new month of november i mean when this comes out i believe it's november correct yeah yeah it's november there's no doubt trick-or-treating is tomorrow we're recording this on a sunday night uh, as the Packers are not doing so well against the Buffalo Bills. So, anyways, if you uh, hopefully uh, you don't have too much stock in them this year, this hasn't been going real well. But, anyways, uh, we're yeah, it's going to be November. Um, October flew by as it always does. September flew by as that always does, and uh, we're going to find out. I mean, maybe we're going to find out. You know, this is the time of year where you know the uh, you really got to love the sport in order to be out there. But I mean, Brad, I don't know. I didn't look too far down the road, but the weather actually for the first little while here is going to look fine. I mean, this week is supposed to be nice again. Yeah, amazingly nice. I mean, we have another full week of incredible, incredible weather. And then it looks like the bottom falls out. But who knows? We're a little ways away from that. The weatherman isn't always right. That's true. I'm looking at the long range forecast right now. And yes, the bottom does fall out a little bit here, doesn't it? But man, the first week, the first bit, I mean, people, by the time you hear this, you're going to already have been through a good portion of the stretch, but it's very nice. And then, yeah, I, I see some 39s, some 42s, some 43s for the high. So it's going to start testing us a little bit, but, um, you know, still very fishable weather. It's, um, but yeah, we're going to, we're going to find out, you know, what, what things are made of. And hopefully, you know, the, the, I guess well, the return to normal temperatures or more seasonal, you know, temperatures actually improves the musky fishing. Because for me, it hasn't been great, Brad. I was on a really good streak and it, and things were looking up. And then, uh, you know, everybody's talking about how tough their season was. And, you know, while I didn't have tons of time on the water, when I did have time out, I was catching muskies and seeing muskies. The, uh, the last few trips out have not been so great. It's been uh, quite the opposite. The, um, uh, the weather has not helped me out. So hopefully it, uh, the return to normalcy will help improve my catch rate again. Well, I think this little warm up spell has kind of, uh, been a little bit stingy with the fish. I, I would say if you're a troller, um, I, I will say that the guys that are out there, you know, following meat around, they're getting some fish, but a warm up is not always necessarily the best uh, bet for good fishing. Put it that way. Well, then I'm not. I'm one of the unlucky guys that are casting and not, not catching because I've been trying it both ways. I've had the last two weekends. I've had uh, two shots at it. Uh, the following, the previous weekend, I had both Saturday and Sunday. This week, I had Friday afternoon and um, today. And I, so I did some casting and then I did some trolling and it hasn't been successful either way. The pike, I'm catching pike. So if you really are into that, uh, fishing has been fantastic. Well, that's funny, Jeff, but you know, that's part of the gig as well. But ultimately it's about time on the water and trying to figure out all the different details that that's going to put more fish in your boat. That's for sure. And if you're looking for gear for your next musky fishing adventures, why don't you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. That'd be www.TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. And you can find everything you're looking for for fall musky fishing, whether it be uh, trolling baits and trolling leaders and jerk baits and anything else you want. Big baits, we have plenty of them. Small baits, we have lots of that too. Check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. 
And if you're looking for some stuff from Musky Mayhem, Brad will talk to you there. But Brad, I know your wife's been posting some new gear. And when I say new gear, I mean Mayhem gear. We talked about this probably, I don't know, four weeks back. And I saw she made another post, new hats, new t-shirts, new things like that. So if you're looking to show your support for Musky Mayhem, uh, I know they have some new gear. But Brad, why don't you, is there anything else new going on with Musky Mayhem Tackle? Well, there's always something new going on, Jeff, but, uh, you know, the blade bite is coming to a slow end. Not that you can't catch them throughout the month of November on blades because you can, I've proved it time and time again, but, uh, ultimately, yes, we got a bunch of new swag coming in, kind of prepping for the show season, you know, show season's right around the corner, Jeff. And, uh, we're always looking for new clothing, hats. And I think we even got some stocking caps that came in as well. So preparing for the winter show season already. Kind of scary to think about. I mean, uh, this year has just blown by. You can check all of that out at muskymayhemtackle.com. Real simple. Love to have you as a customer. And we appreciate the loyalty and, and everybody that's always been there for us. All right, Brad, enough chit-chat. Let's get uh, Tony Grant on and let's talk to him about, I don't know, all things musky fishing. I guess we didn't really have a set schedule we're going to try to talk about tonight, so let's just wing it and see how this goes with Tony Grant. Sounds like a plan, Jeff. All right, our guest this week is none other than Tony Grant, and if you uh, have been living under a rock, Tony wears or has worn many, many hats within the musky industry. I think it's uh, he owns uh, Mountain Musky Lodge, I believe it is, down in Kentucky. He's involved with uh, Musky Hunter Magazine, guided pretty much everywhere from Wisconsin to Kentucky. I think you fished every single PMTT event there ever was. So, Tony, we are happy to have you on our podcast. This is the first time we've ever done this. So, you know, again, thanks again for coming out. Thanks for taking time on this Sunday evening to do this. And, you know, can you go over the background? I mean, I, I listed off some of it, but there's a, a lot more history there than what I listed. You know, maybe if you can think about what, what even got you chasing these things however many years ago. How long have you been doing this, Tony? I caught my first musky. I guess I, I was a little older uh, uh, in 1986, and I was at the time I think uh, nearly 30 years old, and I've been fishing for them pretty much ever since. Started uh, helping a guy out at the uh, marina here. It just turned into it just boomed from there. I've got in Kentucky, uh, Wisconsin, Canada, uh, Minnesota. And it's just what I've done for the last 32, 33 years. So, Tony, obviously you've seen lots of changes. I mean, I would assume you'd consider musky fishing to be far better now than what it was when you first got started? I would have to say that would be yes. No matter where I'm at, it seems like uh, everywhere's a little better. I think a lot of that is just... Uh, you know, conservation and uh, guys learning to take care of the fish and uh, not so many meat eaters. Right. Back when you, you know, first got into it, was there as much um, effort put into stocking as well from what there, you know, what from what there is today? Well, they've learned a lot. A lot less fish now are stocked, but they're a lot bigger size. So the survival seems to be pretty good with what they're doing now. I'm not sure, but we went from five to six inch fingerlings for 20 years to the last 20 years of being 11 inches or right around 11 inches. So you can definitely see the change, uh, but I think we've got as many fish as we ever had. I think we have probably more. Yeah. I mean, you so you're seeing that in cave run too, and the population down there is still very good. Yeah, I think it's decent. Uh, you know, no matter where I go, I, I think what's happened to Cave Run, uh, people don't realize because they haven't been fishing all that many years, or it's went through major changes in the last 15 to 18 years. Meaning uh, the uh, contour of the bottom, drop-offs, timber that was vertical is now semi-horizontal. All the creek channels have pretty much filled in. Strange thing about down here, the first 20 years or so that I did this, uh, we had uh, maybe three to four floods. And since 2011, we've had like 11 floods. 
and the coming at weird times, even in the fall where we don't get it, our weather pattern has just really, really changed. So it makes fishing a little bit more difficult. The bottom of the lake has completely changed. Areas that were 20 years ago, 22 feet deep, today are seven. So we're constantly learning down here. Since we kind of went that direction a little bit, is there is there anything else you want to add in on the on the background end? Because like I said, Tony, you have a, a wide, you know, history of, you know, things you've dabbled in and been involved in with muskie angling. Is there anything that you want to talk about? Um, you know, what I do now, you know, my guiding days are pretty much over. I may do 30 or 40 days, uh, you know, with some older customers that have been around forever. I love my, I still love my tournament fishing. Between that, I'm probably only really fishing maybe 80 days a year. But, uh, I love being the host at the lodge and, you know, uh, seeing fired up people come in, uh, uh, after they get a good fish and their first fish and then try to get them over the hump and let them realize it's musky fishing when they come in with no fish. So I enjoy what I'm doing now. Tony, you've got another special part to that whole musky fishing thing as well with your grandson. I know you spend quite a bit of time in the boat with him as well. Yeah, uh, we do spend a lot of time, or I should say did. Uh, he has uh, found girls. And uh, fishing, which fishing at Grandpa was way up here, I'm sinking fast. But he is coming next week for his annual birthday trip. Will be three or four days this year. He wants to bring a friend. You know, he's 13, so they're that age. But yeah, I love fishing with them. I've had a lot of people ask me. You know, I mean, my daughter's going to be 12 this this coming month, and I think all you can do truly is build the foundation, right? So you set that yep. foundation early in their lives, and then uh, it always seems to come back full circle. So my grandson only goes, Grandpa, I'll be back. You know, I'll, I'll be back. And I said, well, he goes, after college, I said, well, I hope I'm still alive. <laughs> He's a, I got a granddaughter that just doesn't want anything to do with it. She hates it, fishing. So me and her bond on uh, women's basketball. So it's all fun. I love grandkids. Well, you always got to find that common ground, and, and it sounds like you got that figured out. Yeah, well, but, you know, things are changing, which you're probably going through, too, and uh, going to get worse as they turn in from little kids, and they they think they know it all right off the bat. <laughs> they they grow up fast, what I'm trying to say. Well, that's probably not like us either, Tony. So, I mean, you you know those uh, those channels kind of, run their course, and uh, we probably weren't any different. Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt. Uh, Yeah, there's. I I look back uh, uh, with my dad and stuff, and, you know, you just start, uh, other things become more important. But still, Will still loves his fishing. He uh, getting time away. He lives about three hours from here, and making a two- or three-day trip tough with basketball, football, girls. And so uh, he does a lot of farm pond fishing, but we still get in our 10 or 12 days a year. So, Tony, let's talk a little bit about the season down there in, in uh, Kentucky. For people that are interested in coming down, you know, when do you guys basically start firing things up down there? Well, generally, we're looking to get started about the 1st of March. Unfortunately, our weather patterns have left some pretty chilly water. But right, we're getting our worst winter right at the end of February. So pretty steady from March 15th to June 15th. We can't go much past June 15th. The water just starts getting too hot. It's a pleasure over the years to see guys uh, laying off of them where they didn't for a long time. And I know from personal experience, a lot of them die when that water temperature gets hot. You guys know that. So we don't start up again. Here's another thing. We used to start up early September with 78-degree water temperatures. Now it's kicked back to nearly the end of September. So our weather has just completely changed. And then we go right till about mid-December. There is people that fish over the winter. Me and my guys do a lot of shows, you know, because the Muskie Lodge is not about me. It's about I've got 8 to 12 of the best guides on Cave Run Lake working out of the lodge. So 
those guys a lot of times were at shows. We've never really been able to pattern on good here in uh, January and February because the weather's so iffy. It can be 18 or it can be 77. So uh, it's a little bit tougher. So they don't get hit too hard during January and February. More of the river guys. A lot of Kentucky guys that used to just do lakes. Now, uh, as this river boom we've had across the musky world, they, uh, you know, they're they hitting a lot of those creeks that time of year. All right, so let's talk about this. So if somebody's looking, I guess, what what's the best window to get down there? I mean, are they best to be there in the spring? Obviously, it's very weather-dependent. I mean, you guys, I know it. Brad knows that everybody that listens, for the most part, if they're familiar with Kentucky muskies, they know that the weather, it's very weather-dependent, as you mentioned. So, I mean, do you have a, a time? Like, if somebody is like, okay, I need to book a trip, when would you suggest they need to be booking trips? Well, that depends on the actual fisherman more than anything. If a guy wanted to go out and just contact some muskies, probably with an average of 34 to inches, I would tell him to come that mid-March to mid-April. If he's wanting to get a trophy, you're better on coming to K-Run in May and early June. We get that jig and bite in May and June, and that's when our big ones show up. And in the fall, it's the same thing. If, if you just want some shots, in the fall, the big ones can come anytime. So really, my, I've always tell people that October 15th to Thanksgiving is our best time. Because we have what we call the turkey bowl down here. We've had it quite a few years out of the Muskie Lodge, like 20. And we got guys from all around, and we get uh, we we've been the more and more that we're learning more about live bait and stuff like that, and we're trolling and getting guys to throw bigger, slower baits. Uh, we've really been producing really good in late late November. And for our listeners that don't know much about that turkey bowl, why don't you explain how that works? And if they were looking to get involved in it, how do they go about doing that? Well, we just have a, a get together at the lodge over a whole week's period. And uh, basically, it's just uh, people that stay at the lodge. So we generally have about 20 plus the guides out there fishing what we call the turkey bowl for the top turkey. And we get some really good fish, but we have a good time. Watch football week. Everybody cooks different each day. And, and some guys come for the whole week. Some guys just come for Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And uh, we have the big Thanksgiving thing on Thanksgiving. And... Uh, probably feed about 20 people. We just have a good, make a good time out of it. A lot of people that's been doing it for many, many years. The hoedown and turkey bowl. I rarely have an opening for somebody new. Okay. Because I'm limited, just because I got limited rooms, a limited guide over the holidays, that type of stuff. You know, let's say you did have room for them. Is there a cost involved in it to come down and fish other than just staying at the lodge? Uh, you, you know, you can come on your own, bring your own boat, or go with the guide, the guide package. As far as everything else, food-wise, it's just everybody just kind of throw in some stuff, you know. Sounds like a fun time. Not a lot of people can travel over Thanksgiving with family, but I've got some rare groups that do. Uh, a lot of good fishermen are down here. Scott Papowski, the Noma Two Pounder, he's da- he comes down here. Jeremy Burris, Kevin, Kevin Nash, Richie Doyle. We got a lot of good fishermen down here. Vicky Banks. There's some good fishing. It has gotten really good over the last seven, eight, ten years. Well, let's talk a little bit about the fishing there and north. You've obviously fished in Wisconsin. I think you used to guide up in Wisconsin, if I'm not mistaken. I know that I heard you talk about when they opened up trolling, you you know, you, you came on up to, to take advantage of that. Let's talk about the differences that you see between, you know, so, southern muskies and northern muskies. Is there even that much different? Ah, muskies and muskie is pretty much the way I look at it. No matter where you're at, you're just fishing different stuff. You know, I started guiding up there in 2001, I believe, or 2000. And I had always waited for that troll bite with my customers because my customer base was getting old. And the more you wanted to throw them, throwing double cowgirls and magnum bulldogs, that was happening less and less and less. So, I, I, you know, they all wanted to try some trolling. Because I'm not a big troller. Tournaments, or if the customer just wants to do it, that's uh, I'll do it in a tournament if that's what's producing. But I'm not much of a troller. But 
I was waiting for that opening day up there, and I had one of the best days of my life, uh, the opener. I think the opener that year was July 1st, the very first year. So I enjoyed trolling up there. I didn't hang around. I quit uh, guiding up there in 2016. I wanted to spend more time with the grandkids and ride my motorcycle more and golf more. And I just got tired of being on the road. I, I lived on the road from Canada to Minnesota to Wisconsin. I would do about five weeks at each uh, during the summer and uh, just get told I'm living out of your truck. What years was it that you guided up this direction, you know, both in Minnesota and Wisconsin? I mean, it was a long, long uh, yeah, trail there quite a while. Like 2001 to uh, 2016. Right. Now, the last, yeah, I mean, I'm from the St. Croix River. And then, of course, I chased the bite at Vermilion and Malax. I, I worked at a resort on Cass for uh, a couple, three years. So I fished a lot of Cass and Plantagenet, of course, and Malax. And I never did get out your way. I was afraid of you and the Hammerneck. I don't want to come out your way. Yeah, well, we're pretty scary people, you know. You guys are. You guys are. <laughs> Plus, Greg was over there. That's another yeah. factor. <laughs> That's probably a bigger factor there. It's probably more scary about him than me and Hamrick. Exactly. And old <laughs> Jerry. My buddy Jerry. <laughs> there you go. Another name. <laughs> well, you, you did uh, get over to Altona at one point, though, for the championship. Yeah, I did. I did, oh. and uh, that was a rough little body of water on one of those days. <laughs> but yeah, I liked it over there, but uh, mainly I did St. Croix River, Vermilion, Lax, Cass, Plantagenet, and I would hit some of those lower lakes, uh, Little Wolf, and a few of those. I really enjoyed that, and then it strictly at Andy Martin's Lodge. When I and I think I did three summers, six weeks each time. That was uh, fun too. Hard to catch them, but uh, with some really nice fish out of there. So I've had I've been a lucky, lucky guy. And of course, in northern Wisconsin, I was in the Eagle River area, fishing Kentucky, North and South Twin, Seven Mile, Pelican, uh, Julia, you know, in some of the little lakes. Uh, Lone Stone, a few of those. So I really enjoyed You know, I just been lucky. Met a lot of great people, but guys making baits, from guys making baits to customers or just people that live in the area where you stay all the time. It's been, it was awesome. It was a great run. Let me ask you this, Tony. You know, you've seen tons and tons of different guides, different companies, so on and so forth. They come and they go. And then there's a bunch of them that kind of stick around for quite a few years. But what advice could you offer to a young person that is thinking about guiding or thinking about starting a tackle manufacturing business, so on and so forth? What advice would you maybe share? Well, I'd say you better have another job so that you can work in the two together because it's a tough starting thing. And, you know, what I see in young guides, they... They get a bunch of trips from friends and just people, the word spread. And they may be the first three or four months and then it just starts dying down. They have to start working. I tell these guys, you've got to do these shows. The shows may not be what they used to be, but you have to get out there and do those things. I thought that's what made, you know, made me in the lodge and stuff that was, I've done every show there is besides a, a few Minnesotas the last few years. Uh, since 2000, or since 1995, 94, I met Brad Rue at a show in Chicago. So I've been doing these shows a long time. I'm not a big fan of them now, <laughs> but really because the time thing and uh, I'm just getting tired of them. But, you know, the, that's the worst part of the business is doing the shows, I think. But I just think it's important for these guys to, to do it. I think going out there and being honest means a lot too. Train the guys right and all you can do is fish as hard as you can and use what knowledge you've got. And if it happens, it happens and you know, you just create a good customer base, a good, strong customer base. And back when I was doing it, my main thing was I wanted a customer that would fish where I wanted, when I wanted. I could pick 
the state, the, uh, the time, and all that for them. And that building that customer base was really a big part of it. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting, Tony. Over the years, I I'm noticing, you know, I would say in the early 2000s, late 90s, somewhere in there, there definitely was a, a large group of people that were willing to hire guides, and and it's almost like. You know, the guides had maybe the higher quality boats and the electronics and so on and so forth. And over a period of years, you know, you start getting in the mid to late 2000s, guys were buying boats that were comparable to what we we had as guides. I don't know if that's the deal or what the deal is on how it doesn't seem like people are willing to, to hire guides as well as they were at that time frame. Am I wrong, or am I on track with that? I think the guys that have their own rigs and have become musky fishermen, you get a lot less of those. You lose a lot to that. But I see the guy business down a little uh, down here, but, you know, I, I, I'm still going to run 500 trips this year, and, you know, I've had years close to 700. It's been about normal for me for a Last seven, eight years seems like, of course, COVID was screwing because they shut us down completely down here. But other than that, yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of guys are reluctant because, uh, and I, you know, I sound like my dad bitching about something back in the day, but, you know, they can learn a lot of info on YouTube and, and the Internet in general. So I think a lot of guys take a little pride in themselves of trying to figure it out themselves, especially than, I think, the younger generation. Uh, they want to, they want more learn how to do it where the older guys say let's pay somebody to uh, show us how to do it I find that super interesting Tony because you kind of hit it on the head I, I think maybe there's some pride invested into uh, trying to figure it out on their own or what have you but still today I don't care who you are a guide will definitely cut the learning curve and and there's a purpose and a reason for it you know, I get asked all the time about the electronics and uh, my opinion, and I never did it, never really used it, but, and I don't really want to learn it at this, at this stage in the game for me, so, but it is the way of the, it is the way it's going, and they just have to, you know, either do it or don't do it. You know, two of the biggest things, that, the electronics and the equipment as far as tackle, and the, the baits themselves, those things have changed crazily. My first, over the years, it's just crazy. And a lot of, you know, everybody talks about it, but you didn't have the equipment to throw those big cowgirls most of the time when they first started. Brad, you were sending more reels to the repair shop than uh, anybody can imagine. They started making reels that would handle it. And the uh, same thing with rods and the same thing with these electronics. And I think that's, changed i think that's changed a lot and made yeah. a big big difference in what's that and what's happening i won't argue I, with I, that tony i i really truly believe that uh i mean we um and, and you've got a few more years on me than than uh most and i it's amazing the the changes that have taken place in the last 20 years that's for sure and before that, I don't know how many major changes, you know, occurred throughout that process, but it all was based upon, first of all, electronics and, and boats. Then the equipment changes started happening. Yeah, I mean, 15, 18 years ago is when that really started taking effect, right? It's amazing. I, I heard you say, you know, that a lot of your clientele are getting older, and I know I've talked to Greg Thomas about that. A lot of his clientele are getting older. I had the same kind of issues and, you know, you change your game accordingly. Right. So, you know, even myself, I'm, I'm getting to that age where it's not as easy as it once was. Right. So you start changing your process and how you fish. Exactly. You know, something with like the longer rods and these bigger bladed baits, a lot of my customers over the last what 15 years, 10 years of those things, with the longer rods and blades, and I think they caught fish when they wouldn't if if I would have been back using my conventional musky stuff that I was using. You know, seven foot rods. When when I started, the first four years, 
I used musky master rods, and they were five foot, and they were like a pool stick. And of course, you use monofilament, and then once you got braid, you couldn't use them at all because you'd rip the hooks right out of a fish. So I think a lot of guys catch them were figure eight fish that they never would have got with the older equipment. I've seen guys catch good fish that never do set the hook. You would never got away with that stuff with a, a six, eight, or seven foot rod. That's truly remarkable. I mean, uh, everything has come so far, you know, and I have a couple of those rods that you're talking about and they're sitting in the corner and it's kind of neat to see some of the, the history of how things have, the evolution of uh, rods, reels, the whole, the whole works. I mean, honestly, it, it's remarkable. And those changes have made a big difference, that's for sure. You know, one of the things that I always think about, Tony, is why and how Kentucky fishermen seem to always kind of elevate to the game. And what I'm talking about is, and I brought this up, I think I brought it up to Greg at one point. I think maybe Chase and I spoke about it a little bit, 10 podcasts ago or whatever. But for some reason, all of you Kentucky guys always seem to elevate to the game and what i mean there is it becomes very apparent during tournaments and so on and so forth why do you think that is why do you think kentucky anglers always seem to figure out something that uh that works no matter where they are whether it's in wisconsin minnesota canada wherever it might be they always elevate to the game well i think what helps southern guys and it's a proven fact if you look at the pmdt per Teams that fish events, Kentucky, the angling percentage is very high for guys down here. You just did Mike Jones take second in the in the uh, world championship. You know, the, uh, I've won three or four. Greg's won three or four. And but uh, the reason I think that it it it's like that going to Chris Reeby or any of the guys, Chase Kentrail, is what we fish is different all the time. You guys. You know, your lakes doesn't change like ours. And, you know, like I was talking about the bottom structure, but more than that on a weekly or daily basis is water level and water color. Because we can be, we can rise. This thing can, I've seen, the worst I've ever seen it was 19 feet in 24 hours. So you're you're fishing a completely different ballgame. You're not going to find a flat that you've fished for the last 15 years. You know, you're not going to find it. It's going to be underwater, or the water color changes. So, so it's just uh, we go through a lot of different stuff in all these southern waters. I, I think those guys have to learn to fish so many different ways that they do good when they go up north uh, and uh, tackle something different up there because we're used to tackling. You know, you can fish on Monday here, and by Friday the water's done been pulled. Or by the next Monday the water's done been pulled almost seven feet. Everything changes. Your weeds disappear if the flood stays too long. This spring, we started great weed growth. The flooding wasn't too bad in the spring. Then, as you all know, that thing that came through Kentucky in August left us 12, 14 feet up for a long time, killed 70% of the weeds. So we're always fighting something different. And our water color with a good rain can go from a semi-clear to over-cream coffee in hours. So we're always fighting something different. I, I've thought about this a lot. I get asked this question a lot. And from back in the days of Crash Mullins, it's been true the, the whole whole way through. Uh, I remember the first championship, or first PMTT year, the three of the four top teams were Kentucky the very first year. I, I So I've thought about it a lot, and I think it's because we fish a different lake about every week. <laughs> That's truly, truly remarkable. And how you adapt to that it's incredible honestly and i i don't know that there's anybody else out there that uh deals with those types of circumstances like you guys do no well, i've got 10 or 12 guys that deal with it a lot and the problem with it jeff brad is it takes you a few days to figure them out after those changes and you you can possibly have some really dead time. But I've had that everywhere. And, you know, me, Greg Thomas, and uh, Mike Olbert went two weeks to Andy Myers Lodge back 
in oh, maybe early 2000s, we got skunked for two weeks. <laughs> we got skunked. We actually end up, no, we, we got skunked. Uh, so, you know, I know things can happen, but we, that's a problem is figuring out where they went, where that water pushed them to, where the, where the shed, and this is a big old body of water because it's so narrow, you know, uh, that it just runs a lot of waves and a lot of fingers. And one cove will be a lot muddier than another cove. And you just, and you know, the water's up two feet, down two feet. It, uh, and they go through the same thing over Green River. The, the water's down in Tennessee. And then, of course, the uh, floods just blow out the rivers in West Virginia and Virginia. So we're fighting different all the time. That's my opinion on why that Southern guys do better because they're always changing from lake to lake to lake down here without going anywhere. Absolutely, Tony. I, I think you're spot on with that whole time frame and, and uh, kind of what those anglers have to put up with. Jeff, what, what years did you fish the PMTT? Uh, I was down at Cave Run the year that Green Bay blanked on the championship. So Tony might know better than me. I want to say a... Man, how long ago was that? 2014, 2015, somewhere in there, 2013? What do you think, Tony? I have problem remembering last week. I can't remember <laughs> that. So, yeah, it would have been it would have been a while back though, Brad. I mean, I I want to say it was probably all of 7, 8, 9 years somewhere in that ballpark. It's been that long since I've been down there. Managed to find a muskie. Do someone Brad in the reverse? Thing, Jeff. Uh, uh, I see that a lot of the flowage fishermen from the north they do real well. Seems like all over, and I think uh, uh, that may have some a little bit something to do with it because the flowage has changed so much. Uh, nothing like what we do, but you know, if you look at it, and the guys that have done really well are guys that fish a lot of river and flowages up in uh, uh, in, in your neck of the woods, Jeff, in Wisconsin. So what you're saying is that anglers need to get outside their comfort zone a little bit. I think it helps. <laughs> I think it helps. Uh, you know, like, uh, for instance, when I, I did some uh, guide days up on the St. Lawrence River, or St. Louis River, and then that big flood came through there and just ruined that place. I couldn't even ever find anybody that could catch one for quite a few years there. You know, and the same thing happened in St. Croix. But St. Croix was one of my fa- favorite places to fish. Very little pressure, a lot of boats, so very little pressure, though, and I caught a lot of really nice fighting, hard fighting fish out of that St. Croix. I enjoyed that, and it got my share of 50s out of there. So it's different all over. I love fishing all over. I wish I'd have made it to Lake of the Woods. I probably never will now because Greg's there, and I don't want to go there. No, but uh, I, I just, uh, I probably will never make it there. I wish I would have made it. That's one of the. You know, places I'd like to go. I'd still make make it to uh, St. Lawrence or go over with Hans, uh, chase the monster like he got the other day. Those are two places that I'd kind of like to go. But other than that, I think I've seen a lot, a lot of it. <laughs> Tony, which river was it that you won? I think you won the a PMTT on there. Was it the St. Croix or the St. Croix? Okay. St. Croix. I think uh, 09, 10, 09 or 10, one of those two years. And I still really enjoy the tournament fishing. It's the only real time that for many years, and for most guides, it's the only time you really get to fish a lot. And I know Greg feels the same way because most of the time we're not fishing with customers. And, you know, because it's a lot like guiding. You know, you want to get a fish bad. Uh, You know, customers don't realize that the guide probably wants the fish worse than they do. It's the same way in a tournament, but I still really enjoy it. I love that St. Croix River. But I had to adapt. I had to learn how to fish celery weed, which I had never even heard of before. So, but that well, now the last uh, I've heard that celery weed's all gone. Grew out of sand. It was really good stuff if you could find it. So, Tony, you've caught a lot of big fish and a lot of memorable fish. Let's talk about a couple of them. Is there are, what would be the most memorable fish you've ever caught? You you got a story you can kind of tell behind it? Yeah. Uh, it, it was my grandson uh, on uh, his a big fish. He he got uh, first one. He, I said set the hook, and he says, 
why do I have one? I said, yeah, <laughs> he was about eight and it was 45 inch or 46 and a quarter or something like that. Heavy fish, uh, spring spawner, and he got it on a hot tail glider. And that's probably that fish right there, even though I didn't catch it. That, that one, uh, that one meant a lot. And then, uh, probably for me actually catching one, I threw a bait. It, it, it was 54 and a half, so I've had a few of those. That's the biggest one I ever got. I threw a bait just messing around, uh, at a school showing uh, the girls how to do a figure eight. It was a, a, a couple schools, what it was. And they were all gathered around me out in the boat. And it was the first night and we were going to do some night fishing. So I was showing them how to do the figure eight. I flipped one out about eight feet coming into the figure eight. And that big fish ate right in front of all them people. And they thought I was, that's the musky god. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and uh, that one was pretty fun too. Couldn't, uh, couldn't have scripted that one any better, could you? <laughs> no, but uh, it was perfect. Unfortunately, the fish perished. <laughs> sure. There was no cowgirl left. <laughs> you couldn't see the cowgirl. Not that your fish kill, your bait kills fish, Brad, but that one, he ate a little too much. So the good thing about that, they all got to hold it and learn how to hold it and all that that was the good thing that came out of it because all these people were pretty serious. They just, you know, couples just buying their first boat, wanting the musky fish and all that, learned the musky fish. So, the, you know, I hate to see one die. I hate it worse than anything, but that one died for a reason because it caught, a, caught, taught about 24 people how to hold a musky right. <laughs> a big one to start out with. Sacrifice itself to save potentially many other muskies from having the same fate. That's the way I've always looked at it. We talked about that that night. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, Tony. And now, nowadays, when you get a chance to musky fish, and let's say, well, it sounds like you're fishing tournaments a lot. So at that point, you're just trying to catch any fish. You know, are, are you trying to target big fish, or or are you still at the point where you're just happy with any musky you catch? I'm still happy with any musky, but you know, I'll have guys that you know I'm with that are looking you know, looking to target that big fish, you know. Uh, tournaments, I'd love to get big ones, but, uh, you know, the little ones stack up pretty good sometimes. So uh, I just enjoy fishing. I enjoy people uh, seeing people catch fish and learn how to muskie fish. It's, uh, I don't care. Muskie's a muskie. I don't care if it comes in the boat. If we get one, we didn't get skunked. So I'm taking anything. Sure. You know, you, you said that you get customers or clients or whatever that want to target big fish. What do you do differently when you're trying to target a big fish versus just trying to catch a muskie? Well, I think it's really hard to do on cave run, but up north, I would stay on some of those spots that are just known for big fish. You know, I've never had a chance to live bait fish up there or anything, but, you know, I'm sure those guys have gone pretty pinpoint and hang that bait in front of them, which we do here, but. You know, I think it, uh, you know, just uh, using the stuff that's caught you, caught you the most big fish, you know, as far as lures and, and presentation, whether it's jigging, jerking, or just cast and retrieve. I just go by the odds. So if, they, uh, if they're wanting a big fish, I'll need to keep myself in big fish territory because there's a lot of water everywhere I've been. And I never use places you don't even ever see a big fish, so you want to stay away from those. <laughs> you know that's that's basically what I do if the, if that's what we're looking for. I'm just going to try to play the odds. And so let's go one step a little farther with that. When you say you want to fish where big fish are, are they generally out in open water? Are they generally on deeper structure? Where do you tend to find a larger fish? Well, I think that depends on where you're fishing them. I have learned from the Wisconsin troll opener where I caught more 50 inches in a day than I had in years up there of casting out in open water. This jigging bite that uh, uh, has come on strong here at Cave Run or places up north uh, where you see more and more per hour hour fishing, you're just seeing more and more big fishing. So yeah, you know, probably on some of those rock 
Rock Point and Shallow on Vermilion. And, the, you know, I was Mille Lacs, I was, there's really not much open water there that I ever fished because I don't think there is much open water. But just wherever I've been, you just it seems to be the bigger ones are out in open water, in my opinion, most of the time. Uh, maybe because they've been hooked, see too many lures, too much boat traffic, whatever. I think they stay away a little bit. Although you still get those big ones shallow, and I think sometimes they may creep in and creep out. But I think the biggest problem with Kentucky fishermen that are from Kentucky is they fish way too shallow. I've learned so much from the tournament. Still plenty of fish there, but it's just in our nature not to go try anything other than now that this jigging has really taken off. So it's just, uh, it, uh, they got not enough guys try it. And I, I've seen the PMTT, which I've learned so much from, of guys coming doing something different, fishing areas I may have never fished, and they catch them. And some, hopefully later that's going to pay off for me or me and my grandson or me and one of my old-time customers. So, Tony, I'll, I want to take back a, little, a second. So you said that, you know, when the trolling stuff started up in northern Wisconsin, you caught more 50s there than you did when you were casting for them. you mind offering uh-huh. up a couple of suggestions for people that are just getting started in that trolling up in northern Wisconsin? I mean, you don't have to give out exact specifics. Oh, I, I don't but... mind. I'm done up there, and I've always loved it. I told people when I got done there where I was catching them, and a lot of my buddies went back and then got them there, too. But basically, open water bait is what I was trolling, and namely Grant, uh, uh, Jake's and uh, Wiley's, bigger baits, and uh, I was letting them get down as deep as I could get them without weighting them down. And uh, that worked perfectly. Now, the next year, it wasn't as good. That's, I did an experiment eight, uh, eight uh, days on different lakes the first eight days when Con- Wisconsin opened and trolling. Got one on every body of water. If I would have been smart, because the first day I was on North Twin, I would have went back to North Twin every day. <laughs> but I, I didn't. We caught one fish every day on all eight lakes. But that North Twin spit me out like 14 bites that first day, right in the middle of a sunny, hot July 1st day. <laughs> so, but I've caught them a lot different ways. Uh, you know, if you're going to troll, I think you need what guys I see up north don't short line troll enough. And they say, oh, I short line. We only put about 25 feet out. Well, you know, to us down here in Kentucky that fish all this shallow water and sh- our weeds grow much shallower than your guys do, is we've learned to troll. You know, I watch Craig Thomas troll in three feet of water a lot. And you just got to adjust your baits. A lot of times when I'm, especially in the spring, trolling in weed beds, I don't have much more out than my three-foot stealth leader. Guys learn to troll shallow. Like that. And, and that's not, basically that four to 12 feet of line is home run if you're going to fish those weed edges. And then are you running planer boards or you literally just got your rod tip in the water four feet yeah, of line Yeah, rod out? tip in the water and just go right on. Now, if I'm running a rattle bait, I'll have it sticking straight up in the air and usually I try to run a rattle bait at the, at the very end where I can put it back 25, 30 feet and it's not going down a foot, you know. Yeah, I definitely bet there's not too many people that are using rattle baits as trolling baits. That's interesting. No, it, it's a matter of fact, this week, one of our big, well, bigger, well, not one of the biggest fish, but we had 39-incher caught trolling a rattle bait just by Chad Conway just uh, three or four days ago. And in frustration, he had some guys that only wanted to troll, and he couldn't get anything going. Threw a rattlebait on there, and he caught one. But it's very popular in the spring here. Hey, Tony, I, I, I want to understand how you came up with the whole rattlebait idea. Well, I did. <laughs> I mean, for one, they've been catching them here on rattlebaits forever, way before I ever started musky fishing. And uh, little, tiny rattlebaits. And even I've read stories of Kevin Van Dam, you know, uh, up on Lake St. Clair with the rattlebait thing back in the 80s or whenever he first got started. 
catching so many of them on rattlebaits. But I just, uh, I stole the pattern from another guy, basically. Him and his dad had uh, caught a lot that way. He guided for me one day uh, a bass trip, and he had half-ounce gold rattle traps. The people who wanted to go smallmouth, fishing smallmouth, well, he come back, me and Dave Christian, who guy was my first guide uh, working with me, me and him got skunked, and the guys fishing for smallmouth with a half-inch uh, rattle bait, uh, they, uh, they got three. I think 42 is the biggest. And uh, so that night, Dave Christian drove all the way to Huntington, West Virginia, to find, uh, which is about an hour and a half drive, to find the rattle baits. The next day, he caught two, and I caught six. And it was game on from there. <laughs> that's how that's how I learned to rattle bait business. And it, the funny thing about it, we, uh, we we started out with a half inch, then we moved up to the three quarters, and then we found that that one ounce is is the bingo when uh, you know when you're casting these shallow. That that's going to get you more bites. But Bill Burns. Uh, he just a couple of years ago with a half ounce gold rattle bait got two in the PMTT finished way up high half ounce you know how little that is <laughs> yeah it's one of those baits that I think is very underutilized in say the Midwest like your primary musky area range <laughs> I don't think they see very many rattle baits at all no and I do know some clubs that have went to Canada uh, one club in particular Fox River Valley. They went up there, they all took their wives, and their wives, after one day, got tired of throwing heavier baits or spinner baits, whatever. They put on rattle baits, and the, the gals were throwing at the weed edges, letting it fall, and they outfished the guys that week two to one with them rattle baits. <laughs> so it can happen anywhere. I've had some really good days in northern Wisconsin on rattle baits, but it's only those years where that water is really cold when I get up there, so, and that's been a long time. There's the backwater there at Seven Mile. That was a diamond in the stump fields because we're used to fishing stump fields up there. And you get hung up a lot. There's a lot of little techniques you learn with rattle baiting to keep you hung up so much. But, uh, you know, there is days that that happens up there. And I get, you know, I'll get guys calling by seven or eight of the same color from the uh, back when I was selling at the lodge. And they'd get on a pattern up there that lasts, you know, a little while. and. Uh, you know, more and more guys do throw them, but it's not a very popular bait in the Northwoods or Minnesota. <laughs> now, I heard in the day on the north end of Mille Lacs at opener, they could be deadly bred. You know more about that, but I've had a couple pretty legit guys tell me that they've done pretty good there with that. Yeah, it's incredible, Tony. I mean, I've seen it work throughout Minnesota, Mille Lacs, my local lakes, in different places. You know, it all depends on the spring, but. They are an effective tool, that's for sure. Um, what years did you, when did you start this, Tony? When when did you actually start making those baits and start selling them? I would buy them pre-molded at first. They were coming from China, I think, and have them painted. And I think that was 96. And I sold it to what, Lungeon just a few years ago. Uh, we changed them around a little bit, trying to make those nose tougher because as much as we throw them down here we wear the nose and they start leaking in the nose because we're just digging them in the bottom i love them when they're barely tipping the, the bottom in that early season but uh it I, I had done them for a lot of years changed a lot of things around tried some different things some worked some didn't but color is big but the funny story that i want to tell about rattle baits is chad king i knew chad was in water that was rattlebait water and, you know, I'm trying to get somebody to help me promote my bait. So I'm giving him baits and giving him bait. And he'll, honestly, Tony, you know, I've got such a pattern going with these. Uh, he was joining believers. He was doing the same thing with grinding them in the shallows of joining believers. And he was doing fairly well. Well, every year at the show, he would go, give me, talk to me more about this uh, rattlebait thing. And uh, so finally, the one year, I can't remember what it was, his first day out, his customer got 14 on rattle baits. I knew they would over there. You know, if you can get on the water when the, and throw them things when nobody else is throwing them, you're going to catch the fish. Uh, now, if everybody's throwing them, then it gets a little bit tougher. 
I never forget him and his customers sent me every fourteen, all fourteen uh, fish pitchers, and it had my phone locked up for like two days down here in the hills. I couldn't go to download on my phone or my computer. But then after that, he was a rattlebait guy, and it went on to Reby and and Matt Kunkel and, and all the guys down there at fish that place. There's a time and place. I think it's there's a high higher percentage. Time and place, which I think is that 40-degree to 50-degree water temperatures in the spring. Brett, are you I'm, making notes or do you fall asleep? I'm making notes because I'm trying to learn. <laughs> <laughs> the problem with the northern anglers with these rattlebaits is they don't get to fish that wa- those waters during that temperatures. Very, very seldom. Talking 40 to 50 degrees. I mean, seasons are closed, right? Yeah, you're right, Tony. And there is a time and a place, right? And I know um, I fished, well, I fished this spring in Iowa. And it's one thing that I didn't have in a tackle box. But honestly, it could have been effective at that point. Um, I fished Iowa the year before. and, And it's so weird, you know. You're fishing right after ice out. Some of these fish just go absolutely crazy. But as the water temps start increasing, I definitely think there's a time and a place for that rattle bait. I think that's what happened to us this past spring, you know, this 2022 spring. We probably could have utilized it at that point. We had just horrible, horrible weather. It, it was supposed to be nice and warm. It was supposed to be getting warmer. And we ended up with tons and tons of weather that did not make it very nice. Um, and, and I honestly think I could have utilized it at that point. But to your point, the normal opener in Minnesota anyway, it's not a typical rattlebait bite. Now, I have seen it in years past. And every year kind of presents its own challenges. So definitely something to think about. You know, and I think uh, uh, waters that are either shad-based or small shiners and stuff are better better apt to uh, have a rattlebait bite. If they're eating much larger baits uh, or much larger bait fish, I think those waters tend not to have the bite, but I've had guys, you know, trolling in Green Bay with them, and I know Greg's got a lot trolling St. Clair with them. I mean, they they do work, uh, but that I'm focusing that forty to fifty degree whenever I fish rattlebaits. Usually, after about fifty five degrees, I take my rattlebait box out of my boat and don't use it again till the next year. Which there's probably other times you could do it, use it too, but uh, that's pretty much the way I fish them. Yeah, I would say this, Tony. I, I think that uh, as musky anglers, we all want to think that we can catch them on bigger baits, right? And so, and I love big baits, right? I mean, that that's kind of what we built our whole company off of is larger baits. But I will tell you this, you know, it might be late October, maybe it's mid-November. I've watched muskies come through a school of uh, uh, lake shiners and they just scoop them right up, right? So. If you are seeing a ton of lake shiners, there's no reason that a rattlebait wouldn't work through that same same time uh, same time frame, I should say. Now we've you know we've even done Brad, me, and Greg. I don't know if I ever showed it to you. We did a little thing, uh, recorded shad underneath the water with a, and those shad make a clinging noise similar when they're all together in a big ball, similar to what a rattlebait sounds like. Imagine. Uh, and we, we we played that at Road Rules for a long, long time. It was real similar sound. When you, you know, if there was just eight or ten down there, you couldn't hear no sound out of them. But if you stuck it right in a ball of them, me and Greg had this long pole off his houseboat, and you know, Greg's always tinkering with something. And but if he get in a big ball of them, it, it just sounded like they were similar, real similar. <laughs> yeah, that makes perfect sense. Speaking of Greg, Tony, uh, when did Greg show up at your door to start guiding? Well, he beat the heck out of me when he was started at about, I guess, age 14, 15. 
And I said, "Hell, kid, you can, you're not you're not even allowed to take the boat out of Beaver Creek because you know, his dad's boat." And his dad would drive him off there. Greg wasn't allowed to go out to the main lake. He had to just fish Beaver Creek. And once he turned 18 and uh, his dad said he could take the boat anywhere, he didn't come back to Beaver Creek for a lot of years. <laughs> he spent a lot of time in Beaver Creek. But uh, he just kept you know, asking me for a job, asking me to do some guide trips. And he was about just turning 18. And... Uh, I, uh, at about the year before, I told him, I said, my insurance company doesn't let me take anybody your age. Well, he called a, he called an insurance company that would and said he'd pay the insurance. You know, he, it started out, it was really funny. Guys would say, Tony, don't put me with the kid. You know, if I got, you know, because a lot of, out of the lodge, I've got groups of guys. Don't put me with a kid. Don't put me with a kid. Well, within a year or so, they're going, Tony, can you get me with a kid? Can you get me with a kid? Because he was, uh, he was pure dedicated to it, that's for sure. He, uh, he caused some scuff between my guides, though, because if he didn't have a guide trip, he was out there fishing on his own, and he would put the fish in a live well and run over to one of my other guides and ask them to take a picture while he's guiding there with customers. And they, they argued about that a lot. Uh, Dave Christian put an end to that real quick. The amazing part of that, Tony, is uh, I don't think that drives ever quit. And here we are, I don't know how many years later, but, uh, you know, the neat thing about Greg is I, it blows my mind. He can always seem to get it done no matter what the circumstances are, who his guys are. He always finds a solution or a way to catch fish. He's a master at discovering what weighs the highest percentage for that individual guy to catch one, whether it be trolling, whether it be a spinnerbait, if it's a big hunk of rubber that the guy isn't going to move and just going to make the casting worse, Greg ain't going to have him doing it. And I think he, uh, he, he ate muskies on his line 24-7, always has been. We all said he'd burn out by the age 30. Well, here he is now uh, creeping up on 45. He didn't burn out yet. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. He he truly is remarkable. What year did you guys kind of become partners versus, uh, you know, where he was working for you? Well, he worked for me for about three or maybe six years, somewhere in there. And uh, then he went out on his own, which was a very smart move. I still threw him a few trips there when he, when he if he needed them. That was probably in uh, like 01, 02. Then we went back in partners with Road Rules in 05. Well, it's been a wild ride, that's for sure, and you guys have uh, seemed to always get something put together. Yeah, I, I like Greg a lot more when he's up in your neck of the woods. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know how to answer that one, Tony. And I think Kerry likes him better when uh, he's in my neck of the woods. <laughs> uh, You're he's right. a great fisherman. He needs to stick to fishing. You're you're right again. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Just like you know, he got the bait business. You remember the battle, the battle, battle shed. Well, he painted those on his mom's houseboat. He had paint all over her cabinets, all over the grill, all over the front of the houseboat. She was about to kill him. I said, Greg, I don't think you got a future in being a bait maker. Yeah, that that was a little bit of a rough ride, I will say. Some of the choices that Greg made throughout that, you know, we, we planned on selling those baits. I think we sold them at uh, the Chicago show. I don't remember what year it was, but we had like somewhere around 400 and some baits that we brought to the show. And I think we sold 26 because the rest of them, uh, they either sank or they, uh, they didn't work. Put it that way, Tony. So unfortunately, they, they're an incredible bait. The ones that work are incredible. Wasn't it you or uh, him and Hammernick or Hammer and you or something took them to the pool there at the place and out of 100, I think 96 didn't run. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, I remember that really vividly. And the reason I remember it is because we took those baits and uh, I filled the sink in the hotel and every stinking one of them that sunk, I'm like, ah, that's garbage. Throw that one to the side. And if they'd float, they would work. Yeah, that was a rough ride. 
He, that's what I say. He needs to stick to what he does best. That's fishing. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, it's only been, what, three years and you never invited me, but the, uh, at least I finally got the invite. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you guys no, trying to uh, give me in before I die or something? Well, that's the plan. We <laughs> before he takes the <laughs> That is, that is funny, but uh, well, let's not make sure it's three years before you come back again. All right, cool. I, I still keep up with everything. Even though I don't fish as much, I get a report from my guys every day, every every minute it comes by. I'm still keeping up with what's going on. That's good. That's good. So, uh, Tony, one last thing before you hit the road. If uh, we got a, what's what's the best advice you can offer a new muskie angler, assuming it's not turn around and, and, and go back to where you came from, as I'm guessing that would be something that, you know, some musky anglers would tell people, but you know, what's something you can help get them on the right path? Well, the main thing is you got to be able to take the skunk. If you're, uh, you know, if you're going to fish for muskies, you're going to get skunked. Uh, I think Ranger Rick up there is the only one that's never been skunked musky fishing, but uh, you are going to, you are going to get skunked. Yeah. Take that skunk and just learn from, learn from, uh, uh, your what you're learning, and don't put a big bank on what other people tell you. Because a lot of guys, will, and you know this, Jeff. A lot of guys will stray in the wrong direction, and just get out there and learn from your own experiences. That be able to take the skunk and love it, just being out there on the water, all the nature around you. That's the number one thing you got to love about this sport. Yeah, I I think that's fair advice. I mean, it's definitely true. If you can't, if you can't handle you know, not catching fish in a day, this isn't the right one for you because it's, it's happens to all of us. I, I was on a pretty good run. I was, I was doing well. And then I think probably my last three trips out, I haven't caught a muskie yet. Uh, I was out today with my daughter and, and her friend and we, uh, <laughs> we caught a bunch of pike, but we didn't catch any muskies. So, I mean, they had action, they were reeling stuff in, but, um, still, still didn't get what I was looking for. And, Maybe it's weather related, but hopefully things turn around. But anyways, yeah, I would I would say it's definitely fair advice, Tony. Um, and you know, you can take it. You you know, you've got a lot a lot of experience. These new guys, till you know, till they can get some underneath their belts, and you know, they're going to get skunked a heck of a lot more than you do, so or me or anybody else. So they just got to stick with it and hope they aren't one of them guys that catch it on the second cast and then they learn to hate the sport because they don't catch one for the next 2,000 casts, you know. <laughs> so. I almost feel bad for that person. You're like, oh, yeah, I got a 48 on my first time out. Like, Well, that's too bad. You started at the top. You got nowhere to go but down. Right. Yep. Uh, before we let you go, Tony, if somebody's looking to come uh, hang out with you at the lodge and, and, and come fishing down in Kentucky, whether it be uh, later this fall or next spring, how do they go about doing that? Man, the best way, you can go to my website, kymuskiemuskie.com, or just call my cell, text me at 606-776-6567. Sounds good, Tony. We appreciate you coming on tonight, and I hope that you get out a bunch you know, this fall. I hope you have a great uh, time next week with your uh, grandson, and uh, hopefully we don't wait three more years before we get you back on the podcast. So thanks hey, again. Cool. Appreciate you guys having me on, and uh, and stick a big one up there. You, it's your prime time to get a monster. Absolutely. We want to thank all of our listeners as well for putting up with us, and we'll catch everybody again with a new episode next week Wednesday. Thanks, guys.